You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the people and ideas behind your favorite online brands. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Lindsay Dahl, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. So you are the SVP of Social Mission at Beauty Counter. For those who don't know, could you give a little bit of a, of a description of Beauty Counter and, and what the company does? Sure, I'm happy to. Um, Beauty Counter is young as it kind of falls in the beauty category. We helped establish clean beauty as a category around seven years ago. And our goal is to get safer products in the hands of everyone. And so what that means is we bring and manufacture products to market. We cover all the different product categories for the entire family. But getting safer products in the hands of everyone doesn't just mean beauty counter products for us. We're also equally committed to educating the everyday consumer about how they can find um, safer products, those without harmful ingredients that are unfortunately common in the industry today. And we also use our business voice for good, advocating for legislative change to kind of ultimately fix what is otherwise a broken beauty system. So there's so much about what you do that I'm fascinated about and and frankly, uneducated about how it works. So I want to explore all of that, especially on your job and leading the the policy side of Beauty Counter. How did you get involved with Beauty Counter in the first place? I joined the company five years ago, um, so pretty early on. And, you know, our founder and CEO, her name is Greg Renfrew. She knew from the very early days, even though she doesn't have a background in policy or advocacy, she knew that she wanted that to be an element of this business, which I really commend her for kind of having the foresight to see how powerful it could be for a business to use their voice for good when it comes to Washington and state legislatures. But, you know, the company was looking for someone that had my skill set. And at the time I was in D.C. running a federal campaign working to overhaul our laws on toxic chemicals. And um, so my background is really in grassroots organizing and lobbying. And I've worked for the public health and environmental community for over 15 years now. And so um, just kind of given my track record, Greg asked me, she said, are you willing to kind of take a leap of faith and move from D.C.? to LA and um, see if the skills that you have to help pass legislation could transfer to the business community in a real and authentic way. And um, I kind of saw the vision and I was really excited by the opportunity to see if corporate activism, which now is increasingly more commonplace, but was still really rare at the time, um, was possible. And I'm so glad I did. It's, it strikes me as really unusual for a company that's only a couple of years old to go down that path. What was it that Greg had figured out that made her want to go down that path? I think the, one of the things I find really interesting about Greg is that she started a beauty brand but had no background in the beauty industry, um, nor is she necessarily a product junkie. Um, traditionally, you know, she she kind of started to learn about toxic ingredients and harmful ingredients in her products when she had children and. Basically, she could find safer cleaners. She could find, you know, a better mattress for her home. But when it came to personal care and beauty, she found a real lack of options and specifically options that worked as well as conventional brands, but without all the harmful ingredients. And so being the businesswoman is she kind of like she saw a huge opportunity in the marketplace. And in that same way, she realized based on her research that it wasn't enough just to start a consumer-facing company with products that people could buy because there's no way any singular company can reach everyone. And ultimately, there's an inherent altruism in her vision of starting the brand. And the altruism is really expressed through our advocacy work. And what I mean by that is the problem with the broken beauty industry is really a problem with our broken laws. And so in order to really fix the problem and make sure products are safer for everyone, uh, we fundamentally need to fix those laws to make sure that regardless of who you are, how much money you make, you can go into a store and find a product that's safe. How did you first meet? What did Was it a, a job posting uh, that you found or did she come and find you? How did it, how did it work? It wasn't. It was actually a colleague who is currently working um, at Beauty Counter and they were looking for someone who had kind of a policy and partnerships background. And she reached out to me and said, hey, we're looking for someone with your skill set, do you know anyone that's looking? Um, and at the time, she the phone call kind of caught me on at a bad day. <laughs> I was like feeling kind of demoralized with my current job at the time, and I was like, "Well, tell me more about it." You know, they were basically asking for a referral 
Um, and the conversation went from there. And um, then we went through what, uh, you know, we have kind of a long interview process here at Beauty Counter. And I th- I would say it's it was just about just as much about me interviewing Beauty Counter as it was about Beauty Counter interviewing me. Um, but when Greg and I met, I felt like, OK, she gets it. My big fear was, of course, that I didn't want to take a leap of faith and work for a company and then be in some, you know, like siloed office on the side where they're like, oh, that's our do good arm or whatever. I wanted it to be really baked into the DNA of the company. And um, all you have to do is talk to Greg for two minutes to realize that she not only gets it, but she is dedicated to building a business that is from the scratch, using the best ingredients, sourcing the best we can and leveraging our business voice for good. And so through that process, I realized, okay, this is definitely something I want to do. I'd love for you to describe a little bit about the business model, because it strikes me as really important. Um, the way that you're galvanizing tens of thousands of people to sell your products seems like a very important part of like rounding out the story. Yeah, you know, it's actually one of the most kind of satisfying things about my day-to-day job, which I wouldn't have expected um, five years ago. So Beauty Counter is a direct retail brand, which means that we sell through three different channels. We've got direct-to-consumer through our e-commerce platform. We're in select retail stores, whether they're pop-ups or our own wholly-owned retail stores. And um, the third channel is through a network of independent consultants. And, um, you know, again, the vision behind Beauty Counter was to be as disruptive in the way we distribute our products as we do in our formulations. And it's really rare to see most um, direct-to-consumer brands, especially those with a direct sales model, that's the only channel you can buy from. And what sets Beauty Counter apart is that we want to meet today's consumer where he or she is, knowing that some people really kind of like working with a friend or supporting a friend's business. Um, And then there's some people that just want to go to beautycounter.com and purchase a product and leave. And so that kind of hybrid model is really pretty unprecedented in the industry, but it's ultimately that channel of over 40,000 men and women who are selling our products has been really rewarding for me because I get to use the kind of grassroots tools and the toolbox to be able to mobilize people um, to not just sell products, but to educate the masses and mobilize them for nonpartisan um, political change. And that's been really encouraging because I bring them to state legislatures um, and Capitol Hill and it's kind of inviting people into that process is really satisfying, not only for me, but I think it opens up their eyes to ultimately how important it is to engage in our democracy. Can you describe more about these independent consultants? What are their professions or like, how do they participate in this? It's not full time for them. Are they selling other brands as well? Like how, how does that work? You know, it really varies. So um, the women who sell our products, it's primarily women, you know, some of them work full time on their beauty counter businesses and some of them work part time. So we've got people who are physicians and lawyers and, you know, people with backgrounds like mine, you know, we've got human rights lawyers in DC and um, they sell beauty counter on the side for a couple of reasons. I think people become really passionate about this issue um, and they want to be able to be a resource for their friends and family. But I think a lot of them also like to engage in our, the work of our kind of bigger, broader mission. You know, for example, every year, I kind of train our consultants and I give them a toolkit of how they can meet with their elected officials in their home state. And we organized this past year over 250 meetings across um, all 50 states. And that's a pretty unique experience that people don't necessarily get if they're, you know, a doctor or um, or if they're staying at home with their kids um, and they're looking for some extra income. So it's kind of this really sweet hybrid of work with meaning while you can still earn a meaningful income um, while doing good in the world. And for most people, it also means they can do it on their own time, which the flexibility, I think, is something that people are attracted to. I'm I'm fascinated by the process of actually educating the the, the consultants because it's like, You've got 40,000 people. Then if, if you go to uh, the, the Beauty Counter website, there's so much information. There's so many products. There are, there's a long list of chemicals that you're, you're never using. There's a whole other list of like packaging that you're, you're choosing to not use. There's so much stuff there. Plus, you know, what you're talking about with what policies can, can we move forward? How do you get that message across to 40,000 people? Yeah, it's not dissimilar to um, those who 
train associates who work at a retail shop. We have a pretty extensive training program when someone enrolls as a consultant. But then over time, I mean, we're dedicated every single week. We have webinars that we do. We bring in expert scientists. They We do interviews with in-house formulators and product development. We've got a celebrity makeup artist who does tutorials. So we kind of have experts in all the different areas, whether it's product knowledge, our advocacy work, or, you know, how to effectively build and sell product. And I think like anything, we know that there's a learning curve and our business is pretty complicated, but people that are attracted to Beauty Counter and want to say yes to kind of joining us in this journey are also very intellectually curious. And so I think we've found that we've kind of successfully um, learned how to weave our training in a way that onboards people onto these issues um, over time. So for example, what I mean by that is, you know, the first day someone says, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm interested in this and I want to, I want to sell beauty counter products. I'm not suddenly inviting them to join me in Sacramento or Washington, DC. You kind of have to earn that, um, through either tenure or how long you've been with a business. How do you split your time between all those different cities? We travel a lot. All of us do here at beauty counter, but we also do Skype and all sorts of different kind of, um, e-communication to help bridge that gap and make sure that we can scale because in the early days, it was a lot of hitting the road and doing kind of old school grassroots, you know, small visits of people from five to 25 people in markets all across the country. That's how Beauty Counter grew as a business and kind of took off. So we still do that because there's nothing like uh, in a live event. But I would say that, you know, we try to divide and conquer and we know that There are different areas that we try to hit um, across the United States and Canada slowly over the course of the year. It can get exhausting, though. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. I I can't even imagine. Um, What was the first policy or advocacy thing that you did at at Beauty Counter that you were super proud of that actually was able to kind of get to the other side? You know, the first policy when I had at Beauty Counter was in 2015. We helped pass a law in the state of Oregon that would ban 66 of the most toxic chemicals from children's products. So about a third of those were relevant to children's personal care products like baby shampoo and baby lotion. And that was really exciting for me. I had worked with the my colleagues in Oregon for years and state legislation is kind of how I cut my teeth in this world. And so It was really exciting for the beauty counter community because I had known the power and kind of the energy that comes from making that large scale change. But you can only tell someone so many times to be actually a part of it. For a lot of people here that were maybe questioning, why are we doing this, you know, political work? It seems a little, I don't know, I'm unsure about it. We're a consumer brand. Suddenly people realized, oh, wow, you know, we were the leading business that helped tip the scales on a piece of legislation that even though it passed in the state of Oregon, ultimately becomes a de facto national ban because toy makers, for example, aren't going to make one set of products for the state of Oregon that are safer and sell products to the rest of the country. It just basically changes the way that companies do business. It was good that early on for me personally that we had a win because I think everyone here within Beauty Counter said, you know what? Okay, I, I'm willing to stick with this. I can see where we're going, even if sometimes it takes a little bit of time. So when you're pushing for legislation like that, what are you up against? Is it like big corporations or is it just general like apathy and or the complexity of making that whole thing happen? Like what is it that you're you're pushing against? I think there's probably three things that I feel like are consistent headwinds. The first of which there is definitely, although not as much as you would expect, there are a bunch of companies that are just working to protect the status quo. And I think oftentimes people think that It's so that kind of corporate presence is so strong, um, which it is. But I have seen over the last 15 years that it doesn't matter who you are. If you have enough grassroots, if you have people calling in um, to state or federal elected officials, they ultimately have to go with the way that their voters want. And so I've been consistently encouraged by that. But I think apathy, both from legislators, but also from your everyday friends is probably another headwind that I always face. And I think it's just because people don't think our democracy feels accessible to them. And so that's something that I'm always kind of 
really, you know, steadfast in trying to show people that our democracy works best when we all participate. But if we're not participating, then it's not going to work for us. And I think people don't realize how easy it is to actually engage in the process. And so I'm going to tell you a quick story. When I was in D.C., I asked a bunch of my friends who worked on Capitol Hill. I said, "Okay, so I want you to tell me how many phone calls in a week does it take to get an issue on the radar of your boss? So a senator. And um, consistently, I probably polled maybe 10 to 15 people. And I continue to ask this question over time. And the feedback is really consistent. Across the board, people say it takes about 20 phone calls in a week on a particular issue for it to kind of raise up to the senator. And if you think about that, 20 is nothing, especially if you think of an entire week's time. And the reason for that and what happens in Capitol Hill is that um, they have staff that represent them on different issue areas. And they get a tally because by law, the kind of summer intern who answers the phone when you call your D.C. office, they have to tally what someone's calling about. So if you're calling about clean beauty and how you want more oversight on harmful ingredients and personal care products, they mark that down. And once it gets to 20, um, they tell that staffer. And when they sit down with the senator every week, they say, you know what, we've received 30 calls this week, people asking for more oversight on personal care and you know, beauty products. And then that starts a conversation. And so I just share that to show that, you know, apathy is big, but once people start to see this um, and how their voice really does, one phone call does have a pretty tremendous impact in shaping our democracy. Suddenly they're willing to engage in a way they weren't before. Yeah, I see this all the time on on Twitter in particular, where, you know, some kind of issue comes up and there's this call to, you know, hey, phone up your government officials. And I always wonder myself, like, does that work? Or uh, are, you know, because of the, the, the way that our country is so divided right now, you know, you're just calling someone who probably already knows about that. And, it, you know, your elected re- representative is already maybe fighting for that, or maybe not. I, I guess that, that, that part seems like the biggest aspect that, that uh, people need to, I guess, be mobilized around. Yeah. And I think um, another thing, so even if you feel like, oh, my senator cares about this issue already, I know that he or she is fighting for this. There's still a value in calling because what happens when you're in the kind of halls of Congress is that if so many people are calling about an issue that you care about, then that office, like if their phones go down or like it just creates another way for them to create political momentum by having chatter within the walls. So if, if you know, we're in California here, um, if you're calling Senator Feinstein about an issue that, you know, she's already a champion of. But if you shut down their phones because everyone's calling, then they can use that to say, look how many people care about this issue. Um, so it's like it's these small little nuances of how things actually get done in D.C. are directly related to how we, the people, communicate with the people who represent us in office. I imagine that the the consultants, the independent consultants that you work with, even more so than the, maybe the end consumer, are are people that are participating in that when you're when you're trying to mobilize some of those folks around an idea. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say that a lot of them join Beauty Counter with the kind of same skepticism as the every, you know, anyone you'd see on the street. And suddenly now they're way more engaged in the political process than they were before they joined Beauty Counter. So we kind of make it accessible to them. And then they emulate that and they share that enthusiasm with their friends and their local communities because they're someone that their friends look up to. So it has this kind of cool trickle down effect that ultimately it's, it sounds super nerdy, but it's true. It's kind of, um, it's infectious in a really good way. Has your job changed in any way since Trump took office? Um, not really. I would say I one of the beauties of working on this issue is that both Democrats and Republicans, when you talk to people out in the world, really care about this issue. It's really nonpartisan in the truest sense of the word. And I can say that um, because I've worked on removing toxic chemicals from consumer products long before working at Beauty Counter. And Ultimately, Congress passes the laws and the kind of signature happens at the desk in the Oval Office or in the Rose Garden. And so um, my job hasn't changed that much. Actually, we've seen because we every year our momentum is building in D.C., we've seen more um, traction in the last few years. I'd love for you to explain what the FDA's role is in cosmetics, you know, especially as it relates to drugs and medicine and food. It seems like this area is regulated Slightly differently? 
Yeah, that's a um, good way. <laughs> it's I a mean, nice way to put it. It's kind of a, a nice gray area. I don't, I don't know much about it. Yeah, so the beauty industry is one of the least regulated industries in the consumer marketplace. Um, to give you an example of that, the last time that Congress passed a major federal law overseeing the safety of ingredients that are used in the shave cream that you use or the lotion I put on my body in the morning um, was in 1938. And so FDR was the last president to sign in a major overhaul to our cosmetic safety laws. Um, So we've got a lot of work to do because the science since the 30s has rapidly evolved. Um, To give you an example, the European Union has passed um, legislation well over a decade ago to restrict over 1,400 ingredients in personal care products, and the United States has restricted just 30 to date. Um, So we're really far behind. But what it means is that the FDA... The agency doesn't have the authority or the power to take action when they see something that's happening in the marketplace. So a good example of that is um, two years ago, well, I would say it's more than two years ago, but it's been a kind of consistent problem. There were hair straightening straightening treatments that use up to 40% formaldehyde that are really common for people to get in salons. And formaldehyde is a known human carcinogen, and it creates a major exposure both for the person who is receiving the hair straightening treatment, but more so for the technician who's administering it. And the FDA saw that this was a problem, but they couldn't and they still can't to this day recall that product from the marketplace. And so this is one example of many where there are pretty serious health risks with some of the ingredients used in our personal care products, but the FDA can't do anything about it. So that's part of our work at Beauty Counter here is to not only put safer products in the marketplace that people can purchase today, but to fundamentally change the system so the FDA can do their job, um, because right now they cannot. Yeah, it's really fascinating. We talked a little bit about this on the podcast before um, with Supergoop, and they make sunscreen, and there's just such a a big difference between what's going on in Europe versus in the United States around some of these products. And, you know, yet this is something (laughs) you're like rubbing all over your skin. Why, you know, what do you think would be the the ideal uh, kind of situation? Do you feel that Europe is far enough in terms of the the kind of like uh, regulations that they put on companies or should it be even closer to something like, you know, food or or medicine? You know, I think um, the European market is definitely far ahead, um, but I wouldn't say I would... If someone said today, can you just adopt the European legislation or regulations, would you do that? I'd probably say no, because I think we can do it better and kind of learn from some of the lessons. For example, you know, people assume just because something's made in the European Union that it's automatically safe. And there's still a bunch of ingredients used in the European market that we restrict here at Beauty Counter. So I think what I would I would say somewhere in between, I don't think the ingredients used and beauty products need to be as heavily regulated as um, pharmaceuticals because those are they just interact and behave with our body in a really different way. So if you look at the science, I think they should be regulated based on the science of how we're exposed. Um, so I think somewhere in between, and I think that's part of why we've been advocating for legislation in D.C. that fixes the main problem. And the main problem is that the FDA doesn't have a say over which ingredients the beauty industry uses. So what I mean by that is they don't get to say green light, you can use this ingredient, it's totally safe. Or yellow light, this ingredient is safely used in these different ways. Or red, you know what, this thing is toxic, there's a bunch of science behind it, it should move off the market. And that lack of a system is the biggest problem. And that's what we're encouraging our leaders in Washington, D.C. to pass to ultimately make sure that when new products are coming to market, the ingredients used have been screened for safety. So in the in the never list, as you call it, uh, on the Beauty Counter uh, website, there's 1,500 chemicals. I don't know how involved you are in establishing that that list, but I guess how easy is it to decide to add something to that list internally at Beauty Counter? You know, we're always adding to the never list. So it started as, you know, a little over 1,500 and it's grown over the years. I would say we, you know, how easy is it is your question, I think. Well, how um, easy in the sense of like, um, A, uh, how much research is involved in deciding to put some something there on that list? Like, I, I'm looking at the description right now and, and it says questionable or harmful chemicals. So mm-hmm. questionable is an interesting word because yep. <laughs> it's just sort of like, okay, we don't know enough, but let's just put it here because we want to make sure we're not 
uh, causing harm without knowing it. Yeah, that makes sense. But I guess that's the question: like, how easy is it to put something on the list from the perspective of is the data there to be able to do so? And then the other part is how easy is it from a practical standpoint in terms of working with the different suppliers and actually creating a product that that works for the customer. Yeah, those are really good questions. So I would say, you know, we have an in-house team of scientists and they spend their time scouring the scientific marketplace, so to speak, of looking at all the best-in-class literature. And I would say it's both easy and it's not easy because there's a lot of work that goes into deciding whether or not an ingredient is safe for us to use. That's a pretty laborious process. But once we feel like there's enough evidence that there's an ingredient that has enough questions around it, then the decision is easy um, to put that ingredient on the never list. And the reason for that is because we have um, a kind of precautionary approach to formulating our products. And so we, you know, we would rather be safe than sorry. And, you know, you asked about the word questionable. There's a lot of kind of gray area because there's a bunch of data gaps. So if we're, we want to use an ingredient, but there really isn't any scientific literature around it, we don't automatically assume that is safe. And so that's where the word questionable comes in. And, you know, science is both um, really focused, but it's also kind of an art at the same time. And so we always kind of use that guiding principle, better safe than sorry, um, and that precautionary approach when deciding how we add ingredients to that list. Because guess what? The consumer base is super savvy and we're the leader in clean beauty. And in order to maintain that competitive edge, we always need to be ahead of the curve. Um, But to your second question, it's basically, it's really hard to formulate and bring products to market when you have such a restrictive list. So imagine you're going to bake a cake, but you can't use flour, sugar, and eggs. That's kind of the scenario we're in here at Beauty Counter. And part of the reason I think the marketplace has rewarded us is because in spite of having very limited tools in the toolbox and having kind of a limited portfolio of ingredients to use, we've still successfully brought incredibly high quality, high performing products to the market that work in a way that your everyday consumer really wants and expects. How much overlap do you have with the the R&D side of the company? You know, um, so under my department, safety, sustainability, giving and advocacy um, are all part of my team. And so the safety team works really closely with R&D and product development. And um, it's a really intimate, tight working relationship. So I have a fair amount of exposure to it, which is personally and professionally really interesting. Are there chemicals that you wish could be on the list, but they're not because we haven't figured out a a better way to do it? Yeah, there's a bunch. Um, I actually, um, you know, we're bringing on a green chemist to add to our kind of scientist portfolio here at Beauty Counter to help us crack some of those questions, because I think there's a bunch of ingredients we would either like to use and we don't, or we just don't have enough information about. And green chemistry is helping kind of pave the way for finding and creating new ingredients that perform or function the way you want them to in a product while still being benign to yourself and the environment. Well, can you give some examples of those that are, are challenging right now or things that everyone in the industry uses and we, we wish that we could find something better? Yeah, so there's three categories that I think are the biggest challenges, the first of which is preservatives. Um, the second is surfactants, so those ingredients that help make something kind of foam or suds. And then the third would be colorants used in makeup products. And so preservatives in particular are challenging because they are designed to kill. They're designed to kill mold, yeast, and bacteria. And because of that, they inherently have a higher hazard profile. However, when you're thinking about bringing safe products to the market, um, it's not just about the ingredients. You also have to make sure that your product doesn't spoil um, because that's also a public health threat. And so finding the safest preservatives on the market, I feel like we've effectively done. However, we wish that we had other preservatives that we could use because all preservatives aren't created equal. They work in different ways. You need a different one in an eye cream than you do in a shampoo, for example. And um, so that's one of the kind of first things that we're tackling, you know, as a team to say, how can we as a company not only create these great products, but potentially innovate and create new ingredients for the rest of the industry to use as well? And do you think the bigger beauty brands out there have started to move in this direction as well? Or, or how much resistance do you see there just in the market as a whole? Yeah, the, I mean, the market has absolutely transformed in the last five years. 
Um, the big beauty players are definitely paying attention. They're coming out with their own clean lines. I see a lot of marketing that shows that they're formulating without certain ingredients. And so clean beauty is definitely here to stay. It's not a flash in the pan. Um, and I think it just kind of underscores how the market has really shifted and people are asking tougher questions of the companies that they buy products from. And ultimately, once you kind of learn about this issue, to your earlier point, it's hard to put on shampoo, you know, shampoo or lotion every day and not think about this because we do interact with the products we use in our body in um, you know, a fairly intimate way. And so when you learn about it, it makes you want to do better for yourself and your family. A fear that I, I have is as we, I think the conversation around sustainability and, and some of these topics are, is really coming to the surface. And it's great that a lot of consumers are starting to, to put that you know, at the top of their list when they're considering different products. But now it creates a, a weird incentive for companies to go and develop some solution and keep it secret, basically keep it to themselves. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you see? And, and how do we fight that so that, you know, if, if we come up with a, a great new surfactant, <laughs> it becomes a thing that can be adopted more easily so that we can more quickly, you know, make beauty safer? Yeah, Beauty Counter is a company that's built on transparency. And so we're doing things, you know, a little differently. And I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier, which is, When you have a CEO who doesn't come from the industry, you know, she's more willing to do things that seem unconventional. So the first thing is that we disclose all of our ingredients, including fragrance ingredients publicly. So we kind of put all the ingredients in every single product out there for others to see. Um, And so definitely people are looking at that and kind of following suit. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because we definitely want to lead the industry towards safer formulations. Um, But another example of this is, We have a collaboration with Tufts University, in particular, a scientist on their team who is the known kind of leading researcher on looking at the hormonal impacts of ingredients and materials. And we're working right now to publish all of that, all of our findings publicly. So other competitors and other brands can see the kind of conclusions that we found because we think open sourcing these types of studies is really important to help advance the industry. What do you think uh, if if you were starting a brand new startup today and and you were you know looking at any I mean at any market but let's just take the the cosmetics one as an example how would you approach this aspect of the business because you know there's there's so much that goes in if you're building your your team and you've got you know ten people and that's what you can afford like how much weight should startups put on on this area. I think specifically focusing on material and chemical safety is probably where I'd put the majority of my weight. You know, we care about sustainability deeply. We also care about advocacy. Obviously, that's where my kind of history of my career has been. But those are things you can also tackle a little bit later. But if you're a consumer facing company, um, you know, when you are starting and you're building products, you are making choices about chemicals and ingredients and materials that are used that the public is definitely going to decide whether or not they're going to buy your product. And so I feel like if you have 10 headcount in the beginning, one of those should be really focused on chemical and material safety because the ship has sailed and consumers are asking about this question more and more. And there's a pretty vibrant nonprofit community out there that's doing a lot of education for people to ask these tough questions. And so I think it's important for companies to be asking those right questions because how you build your products, you have to go back and basically redo everything if you decide to care about this a few years later. Yeah, I think that's, another way to ask that question would be to say like, what's easy to do when you're small and what's easy to do when you become bigger? At Lumi, we're involved in the, the packaging world. And so one thing that we see is some startups have done a really good job uh, at an early stage choosing very strict principles. Like, for example, we're only going to use FSC paper or mm-hmm. something like that. And when you start, you can establish that as a strict guideline within your packaging. And then once you've done it for a few years, it just becomes normal. Whereas, if, like you said, if you try to like retrofit that into a product line that's already existing, it can be quite costly and complicated. So I guess, are there things like that that come to mind that are easier to do when you're smaller? Yeah, I definitely think um, you hit the nail on the head. So especially if you look at sustainability as a field, 
we started with, uh, we have the never list, which is a restricted list for the kind of formulations, but we also have a, a restricted list for our packaging. And starting with strong kind of company guidelines early on makes it easier rather than making things harder as you launch. But then if you look at, for example, early on, we didn't offset all of our corporate travel um, for carbon emissions. That's a, that was a sustainability nice to have, um, but was something that we didn't have the kind of time and capacity to take on. But we now do now that we're a little bit older as a brand. So making those decisions early on, I think the easier thing to do is to kind of have those strict formulating guidelines very early on to prevent headaches. And also as the company grows, you just need to hire people that are aligned with that mission and willing to do the tough work. Because to use the packing packaging example you just did, packaging is super tough and there's some cool innovative things on the market, but they don't necessarily work for all products. And so, uh, you know, we found that hiring people that are willing to kind of roll up their sleeves and do the hard work to bring a product to market with those strict guiding principles um, has been really key. Are there resources that you go to a lot um, for research or people that you follow out there that you find are, are constantly teaching you about um, the best practices? Yeah, I think um, I would say sustainable brands is a good resource, especially when it comes to sustainability and packaging and those types of innovative things that are coming in the marketplace. I also, when it comes to the science around ingredients and safety, there's a website called Environmental Health News. And they have a daily email called Above the Fold that basically curates all the top stories in environmental health, the scientific world, climate change, that kind of stuff, and delivers it. So I feel like that's a good way for me to keep my finger on the pulse of what's happening out there. But I'm also still really well connected to a lot of the leading organizations that I worked with in D.C. that their in-house scientists help guide my thinking about where we need to go as well. So some of the leaders in the field like NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council, and Environmental Defense Fund as well. Cool. We'll put some link to that, uh, to those resources in the show notes. I'm curious about the Senate bill that passed in, in uh, March. I would love for you to talk a little bit about that because I was reading uh, about it on Diane Feinstein's website. <laughs> but I would love for you to describe kind of your involvement in it and what, what it was all about. Yeah, so um, the Senate bill was introduced in March, so it had to be reintroduced every two years. If a bill doesn't pass, it has to um, have a formal reintroduction. So that's what happened this spring. Um, we've worked on the Personal Care Product Safety Act for over five years now, long before the bill was actually even introduced. And we're proud to have kind of helped raise the profile of this issue through, you know, directly lobbying um, senators and their staff, as well as doing a bunch of the kind of mobilization work that we had talked about before. So those district meetings with elected officials, um, our consultants, you know, when they sell products, they engage their clients and ask them to contact their elected officials. We have a text action that takes less than a minute to engage with. And so the bill, once it gets across the finish line, will fundamentally fix the flaws that I talked about before. So first and foremost, it will allow the FDA to review ingredients for safety it will allow the FDA to remove a product from market like that hair straightening treatment I talked about before. It will also help um, increase transparency. You know, the beauty industry is a really, um, it's a real secret industry. And so a lot of the ingredients and fragrances used don't have to be listed on the product. So it kind of lifts the veil of secrecy and it would help level the playing field when it comes to marketing claims. And so I think the legislation doesn't have every little element um, that I would like to see passed, but I'm also a realist and I know what it takes to get things passed in D.C. And I think it's a really good first step to bring us closer to um, safer products. People who listen to the news hear about lobbying almost every day, but I don't know if people really know what that is. Like what, mm -hmm. <laughs> what actually happens like on a day-to-day -day, uh, basis and what does that what does that actually look like to you? And do you see it as a as a necessary evil? E even if you're trying to push forward this positive change, it still requires all that effort and, and money and, and and stuff to be done. I mean, no one grows up thinking I want to be a lobbyist. Um, and for years, my parents were like, "You're what?" Um, <laughs> people think of golf trips and like fancy dinners. That is not um, what I do for my job. It's not that glamorous. You know, lobbying is basically anyone can do it. And whether it's at a state or a federal level, um, people are kind of shocked to realize that you can just walk into any of the buildings. Um, you can walk into your senator's office. 
um, without an appointment or anything and, you know, sit down and meet with someone. The way it unfolds, it's a conversation. And so for us, it's we share why we think the beauty industry can do better, why we think beauty should be good for you, um, how the industry is broken and what we think the legislative fix for it is. Um, So we have kind of business or um, policy minded conversations. But oftentimes, like, for example, when beauty counter consultants are meeting with their elected officials in their hometowns, they're sharing why they care about this issue. So maybe they have a loved one who became sick and suddenly they had to think really differently about the products in their home or, you know, they learned about the lack of transparency and they felt kind of betrayed from the companies that they had been supporting over the years And so really it's, you know, sharing why you care about an issue um, and advocating for an issue with a particular senator or their staff who represent them. And I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with lobbying. I think, um, unfortunately, some of the loudest voices are people that can have a bunch of, you know, hired guns that spend a lot of time in D.C. But as we talked about before, You know, when I go into an office, for example, we have a really strong base of consultants in the state of Tennessee. When I go in to meet with those offices, they respond really differently to me than they do for another office where we don't have as many people calling in. And so I think it's part of the kind of ecosystem of educating people on all the issues they need to know about, because it takes a lot of expertise in order to ultimately pass what is good legislation. I've seen you call yourself a professional agitator. <laughs> I guess I'm wondering what that means to you relative to lobbying. Yeah, I mean, I think in order to be a lobbyist or an activist or, you know, someone that's trying to change the status quo, there is a certain level of agitation you have to have. And so I am the youngest of three. And so I was always the young kind of annoying sibling. And I found a career to channel that <laughs> annoying, like <laughs> pestering. You just have to like keep sticking with it. And so I think, you know, just knowing that If you're having a conversation with people, they're not always going to agree with you, but being okay with that kind of discomfort, knowing that if you listen enough rather than, you know, talk all the time, you can find something that the person you're trying to convince cares about. You can connect your issue to their values. And so being a professional agitator is, is, is satisfying, but it's also a painstaking process. Yeah, I guess it goes back to what we were talking about when it comes to like calling your government officials, your elected officials. And it's like anyone can only care about so many things at any given point. I mean, like maybe three or five maximum. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like, how do you get the thing that you care about to rise up to the top three or 10 or whatever it is that somebody else cares about? It seems like kind of what your job is all about to some extent. Yeah. And it's also about playing the long game. So if I think about when I first started working on this issue, you know, no one knew what BPA and baby bottles was or flame retardants. And it just felt very foreign. It was, I, at the time we were definitely out there and we were responding to a field of science that was not out there. But as far as the, you know, public is concerned, they were like, what are you talking to us about? And now you'll be hard pressed to find a new mom who doesn't know about finding, you know, baby bottles that have the right material and the um, glass or safer plastic or, you know, or is asking really tough questions about what kind of car seat or baby crib should I be buying? And that just goes to show the power of playing the long game and that kind of chronic persistence of making sure that your issue ultimately does rise up in the agenda, but that doesn't happen overnight. Do you find that it's, it's data or it's like emotion that convinces people more? It depends on who you're talking to, but I think it's a combination of both. So we're all emotional beings. And if you look at any of the kind of literature out there of how people start to care about certain causes, it's generally some sort of emotional connection to a cause. But ultimately, if you don't have good science behind your cause, you're not going to be able to build a credible movement. And so we've seen the kind of top leading institutions like the American Academy of Pediatrics, March of Dimes, like really well-respected science-based organizations have taken stances on this very issue, which I think has been really important. So it doesn't seem like it's just an issue that people are being emotional about unnecessarily without it being actually rooted in a, a solid field of science. What's your personal point of view on how social media has affected politics over the past several years? Like, how do you think about that? And do you have an optimistic or pessimistic take on it? 
I think both. I have mostly an optimistic take on it. I particularly love Twitter for that reason. It's It creates accessibility where you don't necessarily have it, unlike Facebook and Instagram. And I think it has changed how people learn about issues. I think social media has also made it people that weren't politically active a few years ago now feel like they can be and use their voice through social media. So I think it's mostly a good thing. Um, the thing I'm not optimistic about is when you start to get into the conversation about foreign interests kind of taking over and creating fake news or fake political ads that help kind of add to the divisiveness of our country. So I think we definitely need to tackle that problem, which is a major threat to our mo- democracy. But ultimately, social media has been a really powerful tool for us um, here at Beauty Counter to help kind of spread the word and get people engaged and intrigued about the, both the work that we're doing, but how they can use that to um, help inform their elected officials. You know, social media is, is so new relative to the history of time and, and media over the past, you know, 100, 150 years. And it seems to me like we're maybe just now starting to, it, it's kind of going through this like teenage moment where we're starting to understand exactly kind of the boundaries of what should exist. And maybe I, this is my optimistic take that maybe we can kind of hit a new level in the next five years where m- most people are educated about, I guess, what to trust on the internet and and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, is that something you see? Like we're getting more educated about what to what to trust online. Yeah, I definitely see that, and it kind of reminds me. So I just had my sixteen year old niece staying with me last weekend, and you know she's kind of like. I would assume she's spending her entire day on social media, but she's of the age where she's kind of almost over it. (laughs) And so it makes me realize like, oh, okay, things are moving really quickly when it comes to the digital world. But yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, What are you excited about? What are the things that you're working on on now that you want to see get across the finish line? You know, one thing I'm really excited about. So um, this week on Thursday, I am um, heading to Sacramento to lobby for a bill that would basically take the first major step in unraveling what's called the fragrance loophole. So stay with me for a second. (laughs) If you flip over a product and you look at the ingredient list, we're used to seeing the word fragrance or parfum. Unfortunately, that word is um, masking sometimes hundreds of different ingredients that make up that particular scent. And unfortunately, scents of products have some of the worst ingredients. So those that are linked to allergies and hormone disruption. And so Um, Right now, whether you buy a product in Europe, Canada, or the United States, um, companies can keep those fragrance ingredients secret. And in California, we've helped um, shepherd a bill across the Senate. Now it's um, heading to the assembly floor. And I think it's likely to pass this year, um, knock on wood, that would take the first major step in kind of peeling back that curtain of secrecy for the consumer. And again, since the California market is so big, Um, If a bill like that passes in the state of California, it ultimately has a ripple effect across the entire country and the industry at large. So I'm really excited about that. We've got some beauty counter consultants who are joining us as well as we're partnering with a bunch of kind of leading nonprofits in the field. And we'll be spending the day in Sacramento. So I'm really excited and kind of encouraged by that work, because even for someone like myself, in the beginning of this legislative session, I thought, oh, I feel like it's probably going to take us a few years to get this bill passed. But we've been really excited by how quickly it's been moving. I haven't given you any time to think about this, but I'm going to throw it out there. Maybe another answer will come to you later. But are there any free ideas you just want to give to people now just to say, like, I'm not going to get around to this, but someone needs to take up this thing and run with it? Oh, okay. If someone can create um, an entire portfolio of really safe um, colorants, that would be the first one. Um, Mm. Since colorants are really hard, most of them that are naturally occurring in the earth do contain some sort of heavy metals, just because heavy metals kind of tag onto the colorants. So I think that's a major opportunity. I think we have so much work to do on packaging, especially packaging as it relates to the beauty industry. Finding that kind of elevated look that looks really beautiful that people want to have in their home is really different than buying a, you know, mushroom plastic for your laundry detergent, for example. So I feel like beauty, sustainable packaging is another thing that I would love for someone just to run with. And then I can't think of a third right now, but... Is there anything in the in the world of policy that, you know, you have on your like, to-do list, but it's like 10th or down the line? 
Yeah, I think probably um, establishing some understanding of marketing claims. So if you see green, all natural, mm. non-toxic, oh, none yeah. of those are um, regulated right now. And they mean really different things to different people and the companies who are using them. And so I think that's another legislative thing on the list where I feel like if someone could tackle that and do it well, because if it's done poorly, it could be a major, it could set the industry back. But um, if someone could do that well and put some good thinking in the same way that the USDA has really good definitions around organic, I would love for someone to, to take that on. And if not, rest assured, Beauty Counter still has it on our long laundry list to tackle in a few years. Beauty Counter is beautycounter.com if people want to go learn more. Is there anything else you want to point people to if they're particularly fascinated by the conversation that we just had? Yeah, I think two things. So if you, on our website, if you check out the Never List, it's the top list of offenders in beauty and personal care products. I would compare the products you have at home to the Never List just to kind of see where you're starting. And the second is there's a tool by the Environmental Working Group called Skin Deep where you can type in your product and it ranks it on a scale from one to 10. It doesn't have all products, but it has a lot of them. And it, again, kind of gives you a gauge of what's the safety of the ingredients and the products I'm using on my skin every day. So I think those are two really good places to get started. You've also got your own personal website and Twitter. Do you want to plug that at all? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, I write for, um, I actually haven't recently because I just had a baby, but it's lindsaydoll.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at beautycounter. And, you know, hopefully you guys like and all the information that we share across the education product and advocacy work that we're doing. Yeah, I'm also going to plug my co-founder, Jesse, did an unboxing of Beauty Counter on our YouTube channel. So she, you can uh, go check that out. It's uh, just the Lumi channel on YouTube. The show is called Shipping Things. So thank you so much, Lindsay. This was a fascinating conversation. I hope people learn a lot. Thank you for having me. Ooh, one last thing before we go. I'm talking to you at home. What's your favorite brand these days? Is there something that you think is really well-made or maybe someone that you'd love for me to talk to? Send us a tweet. We are at Lumi, L-U-M-I, on Twitter. We're making this show for you, so tell us what you want to hear and we'll make it happen. Thanks. See you next time.